I loved the emotional rush of being scared. I still do, of course. I don't go out much to haunted houses, but I still love good, old-fashioned, scary stories. Listener discretion is advised. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a case that had no shortage of suspects, but it would take years before the case was finally closed. The case we're talking about today happened in a small town called Bridgeton. Bridgeton is a resort town in southwest Maine. It's the setting of the 1980s Stephen King novella, The Mist. King revisited the town in 2009 with his novel, Under the Dome. The city in Under the Dome is called Chester Mills and its base off Bridgeton. In the early 1990s, Bridgeton had a population of about 4,300 people. Here is a quick word from our sponsor. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. Explore Health Talk Weekly, Healthy Lifestyle Matters, Excellent Health Digest, Healthy and Free Daily and last but not least. Weekly Health and Fitness Corner. Also, check out Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told Fiction Podcast, for that real life on the go experience with the 27-year-old golden boy, who made our guest invite number one list. He tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life. It's Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told. Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. In the summer of 1992, 28-year-old Crystal Perry bought a house there for her and her 10-year-old daughter, Sarah Perry. Crystal worked at a shoe factory in Bridgeton. The mother and daughter lived a quiet but happy life. Crystal and the father of Sarah, Thomas Perry, had divorced years earlier. Although Thomas lived in the same town, he wasn't really involved in the life of his daughter. On the night of May 12, 1994, Crystal, who was 30, and 12-year-old Sarah were both at home. Sarah was asleep in bed when she was awoken by the sounds of her mother arguing with a man. Then she heard a drawer being opened and some silverware clanging. It sounded like someone was searching the drawer for something. This was followed by some intense banging noises and horrifying screaming. 
After a while, there was silence. Sarah left her room and found her mother in a puddle of blood in the kitchen. Crystal wasn't moving. Sarah picked up the phone to call 911, but the line was dead. So she ran from her house to the closest neighbor, which was half a mile away. She banged on the door, but no one answered. Sarah then went to a nearby restaurant, and they let her use the phone to call 911. This is a reenactment of the actual 911 call. Um, I, I woke up in the middle of the night, and Mommy was screaming, No, no murder, real loud, and it kept getting faster and faster. So, your mom is in the house right now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you say that she's bleeding? All over the place. First responders were dispatched to the area. Tragically, it was too late to save 30-year-old Crystal Perry. She had been stabbed more than 50 times. It was an incredibly bloody crime scene. The police found shoe prints in the blood. Based on the shoe prints, they concluded that there was one killer, or if there was more than one killer, they were wearing the same brand and style of shoe. But they considered that very unlikely and thought it was more likely that there was one killer. The police were even able to identify the style of shoe. It was an Oak Harbor shoe and the style was called Danny. A forensic expert found another clue among the blood evidence. On Crystal's leg, they found a unique type of blood stain. Blood splatter experts called the droplets that make the stains passive blood drops. They come from blood dripping straight down from a stationary source. Also, they fall onto a stationary surface. The drops become circles at the point of impact. The forensic expert concluded that the blood drops did not come from Crystal because it would have been impossible for her to leave passive blood drops on her legs. Instead, the investigators believed that the blood drops most likely came from the killer as he was standing over Crystal's motionless or dead body. The police believe that the killer cut himself during the attack and it was his blood. The police believe that the murder weapon was a kitchen knife. Kitchen knives aren't designed for stabbing because stabbing isn't a culinary technique. Some hunting knives, like bowie knives, and knives that are used for combat, like bayonets, are equipped with guards that separate the blade from the handle. This keeps the hand from sliding down the handle onto the blade. Also, fresh blood is slippery. An investigator on Crystal's case compared it to motor oil. So when someone is stabbing with a kitchen knife, it's not unusual for their hand to slide down onto the blade. Of course, this often results in them cutting themselves. Since Crystal had been stabbed over 50 times in a frenzied attack with a kitchen knife, the investigators thought that there was a high probability that the killer cut himself. The police also found blood drops leading towards the sink where there was a roll of paper towels. But there was no blood trail leading away from the sink. 
The investigators concluded that the killer got paper towels to blot the blood from his own wound. Finally, the medical examiner found evidence that Crystal had been raped. He was able to collect a sample of DNA using a rape kit. The police found no signs of forced entry or a break-in. Also, nothing had been stolen from the home. The murder happened late at night and Crystal was wearing her nightcoat. The police thought that Crystal knew her killer and felt comfortable letting him into the house. Also, with over 50 stab wounds, it was a clear case of overkill, so the police thought that this was a sign that the murder was personal and not the work of a random stranger. The fact that Sarah heard her mother arguing with the killer before the murder helped solidify this theory in the minds of the investigators. Crystal probably would have tried to get her and Sarah out of the house instead of arguing with a random stranger. So the police were confident that Crystal knew her killer. The investigators just didn't know his identity. But they were sure that someone in their small town had killed her. The first suspect was Crystal's ex-husband and Sarah's father, Thomas Perry. Thomas lived in Bridgeton, but he didn't have much of a relationship with his daughter. Also, at the time of the murder, Crystal and Thomas were feuding. It was never made exactly clear what the source of their fighting was, but suspected that it was over child support payments. The police asked Thomas where he was on the night of the murder. He said he was at home with his living girlfriend, Joanne Steger. In terms of alibi witnesses, Steger was a terrible one to have. Steger hated Crystal and was apparently jealous of her. Shortly before the murder, both Crystal and Steger were at a bar. There was an argument and Steger punched Crystal in the eye. The two women were pulled apart before any more punches could be thrown. Steger was charged with assault over the incident but the charges were later dropped. The police thought that Thomas could have killed his ex-wife, possibly to get out paying child support. Then Steger, who didn't like Crystal, could have simply provided him with an alibi. Or Thomas may have even killed his ex-wife at the behest of Steger. The police became even more suspicious of the couple after they received several anonymous phone calls saying that Steger was involved in the murder. The police developed another suspect based on Sarah's account of the murder. When Crystal was killed, she was dating a man named Dennis Butler. Butler was 19, making him 11 years younger than Crystal. Crystal and Butler's relationship was volatile. Crystal told a co-worker that one time she and Butler got into an argument. During the verbal spat, he showed her a knife and threatened to kill her. Sarah thought that Butler may have killed her mother because she also knew he had a violent temper. She had seen him explode on several occasions. Also, Sarah thought it was his voice she heard arguing with her mother. 
so the police thought that Dennis Butler was a very promising suspect. As they investigated him, they became even more suspicious of him. The police questioned Butler and asked him where he was on the night of the murder. He said that he was at his parents' home. The police talked to his parents and they said that they weren't sure if he was home or not. Butler then volunteered to take a polygraph exam. He was tested twice and denied being involved in Crystal's murder. The results came back the same both times. The polygraph examiner determined that he was not telling the truth. It also turned out that Butler wore the same size shoe as the killer. However, when they searched his home, they couldn't find a pair of Oak Harbor Danny shoes. The police asked Butler for a sample of his DNA. He agreed, but then he had no request for the police. He explained that his employer had been good to him and he didn't want to embarrass them. He said that when all the evidence pointed to him and they came to arrest him at his workplace, he asked the police to come in the back door. The police had truly little doubt that Dennis Butler was the killer. Then the police got the results of the DNA test and they were shocked. None of the DNA found at the crime scene matched Butler's DNA. The investigators were so shocked because Butler was such a probable suspect, so they had the DNA tested again. The results came back the same. Neither the semen nor the blood belonged to Butler. The DNA of Thomas Perry and his girlfriend, Joanne Stager, were also compared to the killer's DNA. Their DNA also didn't match. The police then compared the DNA to several other suspects. But no match was found. So they entered the DNA into a database of known offenders. Unfortunately, no match was found. Without a match the DNA, the case went cold. The citizens of Bridgeton were deeply upset by the lack of an arrest. The police thought that the killer was a local, so it could have been someone they saw every day. They could be waiting in the same lineup at the grocery store as him, or eating the same restaurant, or it could be their neighbor. What they were really anxious about was that the killer could strike again. After all, he seemed to have no problem butchering a mother in her own home and then acting as if nothing happened. Here is a quick word from our sponsor. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. Explore Health Talk Weekly, Healthy Lifestyle Matters, Excellent Health Digest, Healthy and Free Daily and last but not least. Weekly Health and Fitness Corner. Also, check out Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told Fiction Podcast, for that real life on the go experience with the 27-year-old golden boy.
who made our guest invite number one list. He tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life. It's Nasty Boy CC the truest story never told. Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. What would stop him from doing it again? The murder had a devastating effect on Crystal's family. Sarah said she felt ashamed that she couldn't save her mother. Crystal's mother was devastated by the murder and the lack of an arrest. Her family said that Crystal's mother died an early death in early 2006, 12 years after the murder of her daughter. But then, shortly after Crystal's mother's death, in April 2006, there was a major break in the case. A lot had changed in those 12 years. When Crystal was killed, the president was Bill Clinton, and 12 years later, George W. Bush was in his second term. In 1994, the internet was just starting to be used in households, and in 2006, people could access the internet on their cell phones. When it came to cell phones, in 1994, they were large and not many people had them. Whereas in 2006, Motorola released the Razer and Blackberry was popular. The big break in 2006 came from the FBI's combined DNA index system, which is also known by the acronym CODIS. The police learned that a match to the DNA from the rape kit had been found in CODIS. The DNA belonged to a 31-year-old man named Michael Hutchinson who had recently served six months on a weapons charge in a main prison. As part of his sentence, a sample of his DNA was taken and it was submitted to CODIS. Hutchinson had not been considered a suspect until his DNA was matched to the rape kit. The police looked into Hutchinson's background. At the time of the murder, he was 19 years old and he lived less than a mile from Crystal Perry. They might have known each other, but they had nothing more than casual contact. Hutchinson had worked as a self-employed mason. The police talked to friends and ex-girlfriends of Hutchinson. They said that he had a problem with drugs and alcohol. When he was intoxicated, he became unpredictable and sometimes he would become violent. His ex-wife had even gotten two restraining orders against him. But his ex-wife told the media something surprising. She said that even though he was volatile, he was not a killer. She did not believe that he murdered Crystal Perry. The police questioned Hutchinson and he made a surprising statement. Hutchinson claimed that he and Crystal were having a secret affair. He also said that he was at her house on the night of the murder. He claimed that he and Crystal had been in bed and they had consensual sex. That is why his DNA was found in the rape kit. Hutchinson said that he and Crystal were in bed and they were startled when someone entered the home. 
Hutchinson said he went to the kitchen to confront the intruder. The intruder struck him in the head and knocked him out. When he regained consciousness, the intruder was stabbing Crystal on the kitchen floor. Hutchinson said that when he saw Crystal being stabbed, he ran out of the house. The police asked Hutchinson why hadn't he come forward earlier with his story. He said that he was ashamed of himself for not helping Crystal and leaving Sarah behind possibly to be attacked by the killer. When the police compared the details of Hutchinson's story to the crime scene, they knew he was lying. For example, the sheets were pulled away on one side in Crystal's bed. This strongly suggests that only one person was in the bed that night. Also, Sarah had never seen Hutchinson at her home before. She was sure that if her mother were having an affair with him, she would have known. Finally, a DNA profile was made for the passive blood drops. These blood drops came from someone who was bleeding and standing over Crystal's motionless and dead body. It was determined that was Hutchinson's blood. Hutchinson had no explanation for how his blood got onto Crystal. Hutchinson was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Michael Hutchinson went to trial in April 2006. The district attorney tried to paint a picture of what happened on the night of the murder. He said that Hutchinson may have been high or drunk or both. He said that Hutchinson and Crystal may have casually known each other simply because they lived in the same small town. Hutchinson went over to Crystal's home and she let him in. She had most likely let him come in because he had used a ruse like he was having car problems or something of that nature. Hutchinson may have wanted to have sex, but Crystal turned him down. They started arguing, then he raped and murdered Crystal. During the attack, he cut his hand. The prosecution pointed out that Hutchinson had a vertical scar on the palm of his right hand. Michael Hutchinson testified on his own behalf. He told the court the same story he told the police, an intruder killed Crystal. The trial lasted about a week. The jury was made up of eight men and four women. They deliberated for two and a half hours. Nearly 13 years after 30-year-old Crystal Perry was brutally murdered, 32-year-old Michael Hutchinson was found guilty of murdering her. In August 2007, Hutchinson was given the maximum sentence in Maine, life in prison. Crystal Perry's family was happy that he was given a life sentence, but they were bothered that it took the police 12 years to solve the case. They said that for 12 years, Crystal laid in the ground and Hutchinson remained free. At the time of this recording, Michael Hutchinson is 46 years old and he is serving his life sentence at the Maine State Prison in Thomaston, Maine. Crystal's daughter, Sarah Perry, went on to study at Columbia University in New York City. She got her Master's of Fine Art in Nonfiction.
She has been published in several magazines and journals, and she has won several awards for her writing. In 2017, she published a memoir entitled, After the Eclipse, A Mother's Murder, A Daughter's Search. According to Sarah's website, she currently lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and she is writing her second memoir. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.